We're the body of Christ, the living body of Christ, and a body because it's visible. It's sacramental. Now we communicate the life of God and the love of God. We get to communicate the dying and rising of our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley. Unfortunately, I am not joined by Dave, too hot to handle, too cold to hold Van Vickle. It is sad, but the dude has a double ear infection. I mean, when it rains, it pours for the Van Vickle family, so please give your prayers out to them. We were going to record like a year-end show, a thank you, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year type show. Uh, to get us through the holidays, because we both have very busy holidays. But unfortunately for Dave and his family, Amber started having a lot more complications. Just on the good news about her marker levels being down, they found out that she was actually having a vertebrae that was being uh, essentially fractured by one of the tumors or something along those lines. Uh, me and Dave, we didn't speak at all in the last about two and a half, three weeks. So we set a time to record in the new year. You know, I'm leaving him alone, giving him family all the his family all the breathing room, and uh, wouldn't you know it, the day we scheduled to record, he has this massive double ear infection, and it's so bad he literally couldn't hear me through the headphones. So pray for Dave, pray for his family. I had a wonderful Christmas. Can I tell you about my Christmas? This was my Christmas. I did nothing. I had 14 and a half days off of work left. 14 and a half. Yeah, days, days, yes, days, days off of work. Plus, with the we get you know December eighth off and the twenty half day on the twenty fourth, twenty third, something like that. So we had so many days off already built into our calendar that I essentially took the last half of December off. And let me tell you, you know what your old pal Mikey did here? You know what I did? I didn't record catching foxes. We didn't record every knee shall bow. I didn't set an alarm for two and a half weeks. It was the most amazing thing. We went to midnight mass. We had a beautiful time with our friends and family over the holidays. It was just simple, but it was perfect. And boy, did I ever rest. We rested. I was able to fly my wife to go visit her family in St. Louis without kids. That was my Christmas present to her. She had never done that ever since we had kids. She had never been able to go by herself. So it was nice. It was very nice. So uh, I do want to just point out how beautifully liturgical our faith is in journeying from Christmas, Mary, Mother of God, Feast of the Epiphany. I just love this. Epiphany Tide. I've never even heard of that. We did this thing at our church where we had Epiphany Water, which is this super duper holy water. <laughs> I can't even explain it, but it's like a 45 minute prayer, uh, right. I think it originally comes from the East, uh, the Eastern church. And then we've incorporated it. And it's amazing because we had hundreds of people show up for this thing called epiphany water that we've never done at our parish. And one woman, as she left said, I think that was the most Catholic thing I've ever done in my entire life. That is says something. That is the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments, which we're going to dive into here in a minute. But 
when you start to see this, so we have Epiphany Chalk. Have you heard of Epiphany Chalk? For the first time in my life, I did the Epiphany Chalk. And you write 20 cross C cross M cross B cross 22. So 2022, the crosses, obviously, Jesus, you've heard of them. Uh, and then CMB for Caspar, uh, Melchior, and Balthazar, the three wise men. So it, it's interesting. You write that above your door. So every year you are claiming your house for Christ. I don't know. I'm just, I just loved it. I loved every minute of the liturgical life of the church that's happening right now. My wife had started praying through all of the readings as part of her devotion. She got some book that she was reading through Advent and it, and it brought so much healing to her heart, especially during the craziness that we've been through during Holy Week and then all the way up to this summer, you know, my wife almost dying, you know, losing three children in a row through miscarriage and an ectopic pregnancy and all this horribleness. We were in a very dark place. We really were. Sometimes I hide it. I try not to hide it in the sense of being fake, but sometimes you just got to process this stuff with your family by yourself. And uh, it's inappropriate to share everything. But I can definitely say for myself, I plunged into a pretty severe depression and the ways of the spiritual life and my normal Christian practice, even my physical health exercise routines, all of that just fell to the wayside. And uh, I'm embarrassed and ashamed and that embarrassment and, and shame compounded, preventing me from really um, getting out of this morass that I was stuck in. But the cool thing was Advent was truly a season of preparation and healing. And um, throughout the time, my wife is waking up and she's doing this devotional and I'm waking up and I'm praying the rosary and kind of trying to get those like a renewed first steps into my faith. I don't know if you've been there in a, in a dark spot in your life where you're suffering and you're clinging to the cross, but trying to pray is like ash in your mouth. And then you take that and you combine it with the politics going on at the parish that you work at and your beef with someone over, you know, something stupid or, or something important and serious um, that carries into the liturgy. When you see them up on the altar, when you see them in the pew or when you pass by them at, at a, at an event or something like that at the parish. And so it's saying, it, it was like, I couldn't catch a break until this advent. It was just as if the Holy spirit brought a little bit of peace into an otherwise tumultuous heart. And for both me and my wife, it was beautiful. And feeling the, the coming out of a depression, the coming out of darkness and anxiety, the actual experience of resting was something that I don't do well, and it was something that I desperately needed. So with all that being said, you know, pray for Dave, continue to pray for him and his family and the healing of his beautiful wife. His wife really is amazing, and I feel so terrible for the world to not get to benefit from her because she is a truly shining light. But sometimes our Lord, for whatever mysterious reason, takes some of the brightest lights and 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 cloaks them, right? Wraps them up in maybe Mary's mantle or something. And I often think of this as maybe she wouldn't shine the brighter if she was not feeling this isolation and suffering and, and loneliness. I don't know, because ultimately I just love them so much and I want nothing but the best for them. But I am not God, and I don't understand the way he works sometimes, i.e. most of the time. Uh, and so I just I just want the best for the Van Vickle family. I love them, and I hope throughout all these journeys, especially from your email, we got the best fans, from your emails and support, you all are storming the gates of heaven with all your prayers. And uh, yeah, yeah.
Yeah, keep it going. Keep it going. Okay, so one of the things I realized, let's dive into our dive into our topic today. One of the things I realized going back through the two previous episodes on the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments in the sacramental economy by the International Theological Commission, one of the things I realized is me and Dave by bouncing back and forth almost made it a little jumbled. So what I'm going to do is help to lay out the big picture of the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. And I want to do this for two reasons. Number one, I want these podcast episodes to actually be a resource for a parish. I want priests sitting down and saying, hey, let's, you know, you guys go listen to this and then let's sit down and talk about it. I want pastoral staffs and volunteers to be able to tap into the riches of what we're trying to develop, what the church is trying to give. This document came out one year ago, came out last January. So this is a Francis Papacy document. It is written by people that I have a deep and profound respect for theologically. They are amazing, truly gifted people. People like Father Thomas Winity, not only is he a brilliant intellect, but he's a true Franciscan. I mean, he's a lover of poverty and simplicity, but he's also a brilliant thinker and well-respected in a lot of circles. So to draw on their insights for the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy, it's such a mouthful, but to draw on their insights and distill it for a parish, this is what I want. This is my hope because this is a sustained theological reflection on the nature and mystery of church, Christ, incarnation, sacraments, salvation, faith, hope, love, everything. And if we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. So here's the, let me give you the kind of the 50,000 foot view. In my life, I have seen us as Catholics and God bless our Protestant brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to rain on their parade, but many of those who are known for mission and evangelization in the 20th century and the 21st century operate from a paradigm that is non and often anti-sacramental, which means that they don't see faith as something A, as ecclesial, or B, as something sacramental. That is, that draws us into the sacraments or uh, springs forth from the sacraments. And so for them, what is faith? Faith is a personal adherence and lifelong commitment to God. Awesome. That is good. It is personal. But that often means in our modern world that it is individualistic, that it is defined by the horizons of an individual's own heart, mind, conscience, whatever. And so you have a not just a personalization, but a privatization of faith. That as long as I confess with my lips and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 10. But that's not the whole deal. That's not the whole picture that the whole scriptures give of faith. Faith is first ecclesial. It starts in the church, and then it comes to the person. I didn't proclaim the gospel to myself. I didn't baptize myself, and I don't give myself Holy Communion, right? So the idea of this ecclesial notion, look not upon my sinfulness, but upon the faith of the whole church, right? This ecclesial dimension of faith needs to be understood in our evangelization, in our missionary work. And this is one of the reasons why I think we have a fundamental breakdown of a lived witness in Catholicism today, in our parishes today, is because we don't view the parish as a part of the church, as a part of this ecclesial faith. We view it as the building where things happen, right? It's my community center. It's my sacrament dispensary machine. It's the education center. But we don't view it as that radical dynamism of God's self-giving love. And I think we don't view it that way. I think it's evident because it is so easy to go to a parish and see people bored and checked out. 
Now, why are they bored and checked out and what's been the remedies? They're bored and checked out because they don't know the great gift that we have in God and in his gift of salvation in Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't live that. We don't know that. We don't understand that. We don't bring that into our lives. We don't step out in bold faith into our communities and proclaim the gospel. So we're not used to proclaiming it because we're not used to receiving it proclaimed, right? We're just kind of raised up in a catechetical kind of faith. You know, we got the matter and form of the sacraments, but we don't understand their biblical dynamism. We don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing and claiming in the, in the midst of these sacraments. And so what we need to do is we need to recover a gospel-centered proclamation, not just of the gospel, but of each and every one of the sacraments, and then link each and every one of those sacraments back to the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again, because Jesus is the source and center. He's the ground. He is the ultimate sacrament. He's the union of God and man in Christ Jesus. He is what salvation is, what we will be by grace. He already is by nature. And so what we want to do in our church is we want to live out that incarnational reality. We want to communicate the incarnational reality of our God. But what happens is in the modern world, as the document points out, what happens is there's this split. And the split is between the way we think about things in the world and the world in which the gospel was given, right? So what do I mean by this? Our modern world tends to view symbols, one, with skepticism. Think about Nazi flags and meta-narratives and all of this stuff. We tend to view it with skepticism. Number two, we have a logical, scientific, empirical mindset where we say nothing is true unless it's empirically observable, provable, and scientifically proven to be true. So it loses all sort, all symbols, right? All literature loses meaning. Everything loses its ability to carry truth unless it belongs to the natural sciences. And that is a deep, deep impoverishment of what it means to be human. If our definition of truth is only that which is empirically demonstrated, then we've lost all of literature. We've lost love. We've lost justice. How do you prove a human right? How do you prove justice under a microscope or with a telescope? And so what ends up happening, what ends up happening is we impoverish our vision. The church was born amidst a culture, a world that saw symbols as communicating more than just simple collection of truths. Hey, here's a flag. It represents America. These stripes, these stars, this is what they represent. These colors is what they represent. That's the kind of the modern notion. Just a symbol kind of collects a handful of, of meanings and, and truths. But for the ancient Jewish mind, the ancient Israelite mind, the ancient Roman mind, the ancient Greek mind, the ancient Chinese mind, the ancient African mind, the ancient Mesoamerican mind, like their understanding of symbols was it didn't just communicate simple truths, it communicated the capital T truth about life. And it was performative, meaning it led me to action. It did something, it changed something in the world. Something was new, something was different because these symbols and these actions were done. And we live in a culture that completely dismisses this. We live in a world that has completely lost sight of this because all we value is the power that comes with technology and manipulating the world around us and people around us and economies around us. That's what we value. I don't believe unless you can prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt using the scientific method. So I don't believe Shakespeare just as much as we don't believe the Bible today. And so when we find that we come to the sacraments, 
Right? The sacraments are invested with signs and symbols and rituals. But our modern mind finds it incredibly difficult to connect with them or to derive action from them, right? The performative aspect. Our minds find it incredibly difficult. And so what happens? Well, we become bored. We get detached from the symbolism. And then we play with the symbols. We falsify the symbols. We create new symbols that have no connection to one, our tradition, two, our past, three, our patrimony, four, what the gospels actually laid down, five, what our Jewish forefathers gave us in the Old Testament, how it was fulfilled in Christ. We're losing our rootedness when we toss away these old symbols and we just willy-nilly fashion new symbols and new signs and new rites and new rituals and we invent new liturgies whole cloth because we think it's more quote-unquote meaningful. So the modern sense of symbols is, yeah, maybe they contain some truth, like an American flag and the, all the different symbols kind of laid out in the American flag with the colors and the stars and bars. That represents, you know, America, the 50 states, you know, all this stuff. But that's it. Now, the postmodern tends to go to the other side. They want performative. They want the action element of a symbol. They don't care about the truth. Truth is up to you. It's your truth. You invest meaning. You read your meaning into the text. You don't take meaning out of the text. It doesn't matter what the author said. It only matters how it makes you feel. And so from this perspective, the performative element takes on a new light in postmodernism. But it is only, the document says, it is only to a shallow level of interior sentimentality, interior feelings, emotions, and emotional reaction, catharsis. It's a play. It's a drama. It's a stage performance. And that's it. So if that's it, then we can mess with the symbols because we want to create a different experience in the hearts and minds of the people receiving them. We want to, we want to tweak the symbols so that they're more up-to-date, they're more relevant, they're more hip, they're more cool, they're more modern, they're more jazzy, they're more folky, whatever you want. I'm just making up words now. But the idea is we custom tailor them to the experiences, the subjective interior experiences, mostly just emotional, of the people sitting in the pews who are now spectators and receivers of emotion. So we take the liturgy of the church, we take the sacraments of the church, and we tweak them and we modify them and we do all this stuff and we destroy the symbols because they no longer have the meaning that they did, not because the symbols have changed or the meaning has changed, but our ability to perceive truth and action in them has changed. The modern and the postmodern mind struggle with the validity of symbols, but Christ did not. Christ did not. Why is it that almost every single time Jesus healed someone, almost every time, he used some sort of matter, right? He spits on the ground and makes clay, right? He touches people. He, why is it the laying on of hands? Why does that matter so much to our Lord? There were a few times where he pronounced using words forgiveness or healing, and they were healed from afar. Why didn't he do that all the time? Why didn't he say, everyone in the city of Tyre and Sidon, you're now healed? Everyone in the city, why didn't he do that? For the same reason why God wanted Moses and Aaron to carry their staff. Because that was the outward sign that communicated the inward grace. That was the outward sign that communicated the divine life. That's also how you knew where the authority was, who was communicating. And imagine one day you just woke up and everything was perfectly healed. Maybe you'd attribute it to God, the God of Israel. Maybe you lived in Tyre or Sidon and you woke up and you worshiped your pagan deity with gusto because you believed your pagan deity healed you. No. We operate through, but also 
God, when he reveals himself, he communicates his life to us in a human way. We receive in a human mode. God reduces his his self, his knowability, his self-disclosure. That's the one I want to say. He reduces his revelation to a way that you and I can grab hold of, that you and I can grasp, that you and I can understand. For what does it matter if we preach and preach and preach, if God talks and talks and talks, if God reveals himself to us in a way that we can't receive it? And this is the fundamental insight of our document, that faith is dialogical. Faith is a dialogue. God initiates, we respond. We're always responders. That's why the church is feminine, right? Because she's the receiver. She's not passive. Receptivity, that's what it's meant to be. In fact, the modern problem with the world, the fundamental thing that kind of broke into our world at the Enlightenment, and I don't want to get all philosophical, I'll try to keep it down, although I really want to. The main problem is we've abandoned our ability to be receptive. I was just listening to a wonderful book of an anthology of the writings of an American essayist, author, farmer, agrarian lover named Wendell Berry. And he was talking about, I think it was called North Hill, written in 1968. And he was just talking about the difference between a path and a road. A road plows through the land. A path navigates the land. A road is made by people with an intention to get from point A to point B as efficient as possible. A path respects the obstacles in the way. And it's not done just to get to point A to point B. But it also embodies a long amount of time, a tradition, a history, a rootedness of thousands of people walking the same path. So he talks about a Native American path through the Kentucky forest. And then in the 1790s, the Kentucky you know, settlers come blazing through and they make this road. And what do they do? They tear out as many hickory trees as they could. And he said, you know, it's funny to me that when you reflect on what we do in a time of abundance, we consume abundantly, and that is madness. And I began to think about this in this reflection, like when we apply this to our life in the church, when we apply this to the dialogical nature of faith, right? What we wanna do is this essential modern turn where we don't wanna be receptive, we want to be the ones taking the initiative, right? We want to create, we want to dominate, we want to shape and form the world around us according to our specifications in this exact moment, future generations be damned. And so what we do in the church is we've adopted this lack of receptivity, this this anxious activity that ends up being corrosive and corrupting of our very faith, the very notion of a dialogical faith. God speaks and we hear, and then we respond and we praise God, and we thank God, and we honor God, and we worship God, and we repent to God, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we love the good green things of this earth that God has given us in order to bless us. All of these things become gift. In fact, that's the whole insight of JP2's theology of the body is the law of the gift, that the male and the female bodies fit together because they are made to be gift to one another, imaging the very life of the Trinity. So if the son is the receiver of the Father's love, and he reciprocates that love to the Father, and that reciprocal, infinite, eternal love is the Holy Spirit, the very bond of love between the Father and the Son, and we're made in that image and likeness, then the law of the gift is also how God created the world. So creation becomes, right, receptivity on behalf of the creature. We receive existence. 
But more than that, we receive a very specific type of existence, a defined form, a definite form. And so you and I are human persons. And these human persons, this type of form, this type of existence that we have is embodied. It's enfleshed. We are incarnate souls. We aren't just spirits waiting to get out of these prison bodies. We are our bodies. And so in the Christian life, not only do we uphold the dignity, the, the unsurpassable power of the incarnation, where divinity and humanity perfectly, perfectly unite to one another. But on top of that, we give glory and honor to God by his extension through the power of the Holy Spirit from incarnation to sacrament. The sacraments continue the incarnational impact of the God-man throughout space and throughout time, and that's called the church. You can't have a doctrine of the church without the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit is the soul of the mystical body of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is the soul of the mystical body of Christ, then she is animated with nothing other than the very spirit of Jesus, the spirit that anointed him, the spirit that fell upon him, the spirit that allowed him to preach good news to captives and to prisoners, right? To, that, to preach and heal the, the brokenhearted and to bind up the wounds of the lame, Christ entered in by the power of his spirit into his ministry, and that same Holy Spirit gave birth to the church at Pentecost. That same Holy Spirit is the spirit, the soul of the mystical body of Christ. That's why we're not a corpse, we're the body of Christ, the living body of Christ, and a body because it's visible, it's sacramental. Now we communicate the life of God and the love of God the peak revelation of which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We get to communicate the dying and rising of our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So what happens if our Lord uses the symbols, the apostles uses the symbols, and then we corrupt them, we throw them away, we minimize them, we cover them up with our modern you know, culture. Pop culture is consuming everything and it's destroying our symbols. But what does pop culture primarily represent? Ask yourself, is pop culture one, something that gives us intelligible truth, or two, something that is meant to move our emotions. Turn on the radio and tell me, do you get smarter or do you get more emotional listening to the music? So why do we model our approach to how we do our liturgies, but also how we do our everyday life, consuming the pop culture and just slapping a cross on top and calling it Christian? What we need to do is we need to address these basic assumptions as we begin to move through the dialogical nature of faith and the sacraments. But the document goes further. The document wants you to understand that not only is the Trinitarian God the object of our worship he is this, and the source of our life as being made in the image and likeness of God, so we're in the image of a trinity of life-giving love. So that's why community is the basic form of Christian witness, right? You need to be in community. That's why the church is so important. Even hermits in the church are connected to the body of Christ. And so our understanding of community is a bedrock imitation of the Trinity. That's why Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am present. Right? That's why Jesus says, all will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. It's not just community based on a common project or goal. It's a community based on Christ's love for us expressed in its fullest at the cross and resurrection. It's the Paschal Mystery.
The Paschal mystery is the way we live our lives. The Paschal mystery is what the sacraments communicate. The very grace won for us by the cross and resurrection is what the sacraments communicate. So now you come before me as a church employee here, and you come seeking infant baptism, but you don't pray, you don't go to church, you don't believe. You don't know the very basics of what it means to be a Christian, yet you're coming and saying, well, I want my kid baptized. This document is trying to draw our attention to baptize non-believers and how we try our very best to get them to realize it don't work like that. My subject of humble imploring of God's grace needs to be present. That is faith needs to be present for the power, the objective power of the sacraments to work in our lives. How many people bumped into Jesus the day the hemorrhaging woman grabbed hold of his garment? Not only does the document, which we reviewed, I think it was on the last episode, maybe it was the first episode, not only does the document draw from that biblical story of the hemorrhaging woman touching the hem of Christ's garment, but so does the catechism in giving its definition of the sacraments. They are powers that go forth from Christ. What was the difference between that woman and all the other people who were bumping and jostling into Christ? You know, Jesus said, who touched me? And the apostles are like, Lord, look at all the crowds. Basically, everyone's touching you, Lord. What was the difference? She came with humble, imploring faith. For her, she knew that Christ was from God. She knew that Jesus was God's prophet, maybe. Maybe her faith was incomplete, but it was a humble and imploring faith. And she reached out and she touched but the hem of his garment. See, do you understand what she's doing? By touching the hem of his garment, she's saying, he doesn't even have to know I'm doing this. And I know power will go forth from him. I don't have to have them pray hours and hours of prayers. There's no rituals. There's no slaughter of animals. There's a none of the show. I know that he is so powerful. If I just touch the hem of his garment, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. You know, I also think about this with our Protestant brothers and sisters, those outside the visible frontiers of the Catholic Church, and yet still marked by the sign of faith and baptism. And I think about this as, you know, how much more saints would we have, you know, 10,000 saints and blessed in the Catholic Church. How many more would we have if our Protestant brothers and sisters would come humbly and imploringly to the sacraments of the church, already animated as they are by the word of God in scripture? How much more so would they be animated by the word of God sacramentally given to them in Holy Communion? It's not just a meal to remember. It's the very communication of God, a very participation in the body and blood of Jesus, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we eat this bread, is it not a participation in the body of the Lord? When we drink this cup, is it not a participation in the blood of the Lord Jesus? So the, the point of the document is to get to show how we need a reciprocity between faith and the sacraments because faith is sacramental. Its essence is sacramental. What do I mean by that? God reveals himself using matter to communicate his divine power. Think of Samson's hair. The spirit of the Lord would rush upon him he would get superpower strength and he would defeat the enemies of the Lord, right? Think of uh, Moses having his arms positioned in prayer when the people of Israel are doing battle as they go from Egypt into the Holy Land. If his arms are at a certain angle, they win. If his arms drop, they lose. So they literally roll a stone over so he can sit and his two buddies prop up his arms. Why? Because the outward sign of Moses was that of prayer. Moses was praying for his people, and that's what got the victory. Think about that. The outward sign 
is what matters because matter matters. It's not just some bizarre legalism on the sign of God. What if Moses was like, look, I prayed for an hour. I'm going to put my hands in my pockets and give the old arms a rest. Well, then it wouldn't be Israel. It would be Israel getting the victory on its own. It wouldn't be a victory given by the grace of God. It also would undermine Moses' authority. God wants Moses, everyone in Israel, to know that Moses is his anointed leader. Even when Aaron and his sister Miriam start throwing a fit, God doesn't just talk to you. You know, what did Moses do? He fell on his face, prostrate, as if he's saying, quit looking at me and look back to Yahweh because you're forgetting him. Right? So God wants the world to know. God wants his people to know who's the one with the authority. Right, signs and symbols matter because they are, they give us understanding and they are performative. They change the world around us, and most importantly, they change us. So, what's the point of the sacraments? Communion with God. So, if all the sacraments are ordered toward my communion with God, isn't it amazing that the source and summit of our faith is literally reception of Holy Communion? Just to emphasize that point, the God we worship is a communion of persons. We are made in the image and likeness of God, so it is not good for us to be alone. When the world sees the way that we love each other, so how we exist outside of mass, when the world sees it, when we're out in the world and when we're out in communities, when our lives are being lived in businesses and in schools and in homes and on streets and all that stuff, when people see us, they say to themselves, see how they love each other. At least I hope they do. Maybe they say, see how they argue with one another. But see how they love one another. Francis Schaeffer, a Reformed theologian, he said that the love within the Christian community is the final apologetic to the world of the divinity of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. So when we look at the sacramental economy, God expresses himself sacramentally. He uses creation to communicate his divine power. That sacramentality is reaches its fever pitch, its absolute heights in the incarnation where divinity and humanity perfectly unite. Think about what God did in becoming man, what Jesus Christ, the son of God did when he became the son of Mary. Just think about the glory that he said in a certain way, the church says in becoming man, he united himself with every man. Now we can become deified, divinized. We can enter into the very union of God with God, the very union of the Father with the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't dissolve. I don't fall away. All that is in me that is good and glorious is amplified to the infinite. And I'm united to God forever. Think about the glory of our gospel and how the sacramental power behind it communicates this communion. So I want to end with just uh, a brief reflection on practicalities, right? Practicalities. We're going to go to a quick commercial break. Ascension, love them. Email us, eksb at ascensionpress.com. We'll be right back. What if you could see that the infinite God is present in your life? What if it was as simple as stopping, opening your heart, and allowing yourself to be found? I'm Danielle Bean, an author, speaker, and host of the Girlfriends Podcast. In my new book, Whisper, Finding God in the Everyday, I share wisdom from the saints, real-life experiences, and prayer practices that help you to see, know, and grow closer to God in your everyday life, no matter how busy you are. 
If you've ever been inspired by stories of great saints, but wondered where that leaves the rest of us, this book is for you. In it, we explore how we meet God in joy, pain, other people, prayer, and in the awesome gift of the sacraments. Join me on this journey of letting go, being still, and allowing God to meet us right here, right now, right where we are. Order your copy of Whisper, Finding God in the Everyday at ascensionpress.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to Every Knee Shall Bow. We're going to wrap up with this brief practical reflection on how to apply this document to your life. Now, remember when I said the they list out about six different things that are obstacles to understanding the sacramental communication, this dialogical nature of faith and the sacraments. One of the things that I think we do, and it's so subtle, we don't even know that we're doing this, is we incorporate that postmodern, let me use signs and gestures and symbols in order to communicate these subjective states. And I want to, I want, I'm going to pick on someone. I'm not going to say their names, but this is, this is very real, very practical. Think about the Eucharist. So right now it's some absurd, obscene statistic. It's like 73% of practicing Catholics don't believe in the true presence, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, why is that? Okay. Now I want you to think of your own parish. How do you, and in your parish, how do you reverence the Eucharist? Is the tabernacle at the center or is he thrown off to a side room? I know what I just said can be incredibly offensive to people, but there is a problem when we take the tabernacle and we put it away into the side. You think the rule was, or the, the idea behind it was, we're creating a place for Eucharistic prayer. But what happened is Christ was removed from the church. That's nonsense. That is nonsense. I was at a church conference, right? I'm at this conference. You can tell they spend big bucks on the uh, the shop, which was kind of in the narthex of the church. Their narthex was basically like the church was built inside the narthex complex. So all the classrooms kind of came off of it. And uh, it was a really interesting layout. But the tabernacle was in a little tabernacle prayer room behind the church, behind the pews. So people could go in and sit there. But it was also across the hallway from the store, the parish store. And I was there, like I said, for a conference. And I walk in and I see the tabernacle and I look up and there the the, the lamp of the presence was lit. So I knelt down, did the sign of the cross, and I look over and there's my parish priest. And he's sitting there and he's staring daggers at me. And I'm like, is this about me? And I go, hey, Father, how are you? And he goes, I'm a little upset. And so he gets up and does genuflex and leaves. And I look around. He says, can you believe what they're doing in there? And I said, what? And I look around. The store was storing boxes of T-shirts and books and mugs and kitsch, you know, in the tabernacle room because they had no place that was nearby that they could just store this stuff. So they put it in the tabernacle room because who's going to pray at a church conference? I could not have been more furious. But it kept going. As soon as mass started, the great tradition of the church is stained glass windows are the gospel in paint and color, right? That the church has evolved this beautiful art form where the very light from the sun becomes a gospel to us, right? And yet what did they do? As soon as mass started, which and the, this church had zero kneelers, as soon as mass started, blackout curtains automated screens rolled down over the windows, turning the entire nave of the church where we sit completely black. It was completely pitch black. And then up in the front was bizarre lighting. 
The only sacramental that was there was a crucifix. And it was a beautiful crucifix up high. And on either side of them was not John and Mary. It was two huge projector screens. The band was on risers that was equal to the sanctuary and right next to the sanctuary. And cameramen walked around filming the guitarist's fingers as he, you know, wailed away on the opening hymn. And I was looking at all of this stuff and I just thought, nothing in this is authentically Catholic. Because what we've done is we've taken models of the world, especially pop culture America, which is the worst of America, the worst that we could possibly do, right? And we've taken it and we've incorporated it into our sacred liturgy. But here's the reason why we did it. We said it's to help the people worship, but instead it destroys our ability to worship because it keeps conforming to the modern or the postmodern form of, uh, of its understanding of symbols. It doesn't try to get us into the deeper mysteries. It remains surface. And that surface is ordered towards my religious consumerism, my consumption of that which is pleasing to me. The liturgy then becomes catharsis in the worst possible way. The worst possible way, which is I take the, my, my center point, the movement of liturgy off of God, and I put it on myself. So here's some other practical ways that I've seen this. Okay, so we believe in the Eucharist. We believe in the, that this is the real presence of Jesus. We believe that every crumb from the host is Christ. So what do we do with the crumbs? All right, what do we do? How many churches out there, right? So think about this. And I know a lot of priests who are appalled at that statistic. They're like, I've never said this is just a symbol. Whenever I preach on Corpus Christi Sunday, I hit all the right doctrinal points. It's okay, okay. What about the symbols? What do the symbols say? You say, well, what do you mean? Okay, so is our tabernacle front and center? Every time I walk in front of that tabernacle without things in my hand, am I genuflecting? Am I showing reverence to the tabernacle? Right? What do I think about when I think about the tabernacle? Is the tabernacle that weird square ugly box with the weird rays coming out that just looks 70s awkward ugly? Like, What is the tabernacle in my church? How do I foster devotion to the blessed sacrament? Okay, Then you say, okay, if you really believe that's the true presence, let's be honest, we all have been wearing masks. The Eucharist has been desecrated and <laughs> just horrible, horrible things. It's fallen on the floor more times in one year at my church and it's all because of fumbling with masks. It is not because of anyone else, right? So you say, I believe this is a real presence, and then the host falls on the floor. What do you do about the host that falls on the floor? Well, I immediately consume it. What do you do about the floor? Now crumbs are all over the place on the floor. One day we had someone, we had a visiting priest, and the host fell onto the floor. And the visiting priest stopped communion, got the, the, the water and the, a purificator, and he purified that whole area and moved the communion line. A woman came up to me who was pretty good in her faith. You know, she would say that she's pretty good in her faith. And she said to me, I have never believed in the real presence more than at this moment when I saw him on his hands and knees purifying the floor. A few weeks later, the host fell again, and I, I witnessed the deacon pick up and immediately consume and then stand right on that area and continue to administer Holy Communion. When you think about all of this stuff, what about the patent? Remember, we used to have communion plates that used to go under your hands or under your chin when you received on the tongue. What happened to that? So this is the thing is you might say, oh, come on, that's a little old school. No, no, no. See, this is the point. When we strip away tertiary things because we think they no longer matter, 
we lose sight of these tertiary things. We're upholding secondary things, which we're upholding primary things. And so what happens? Well, you take away the patents, the communion plates, you remove them, and then all of a sudden, the idea of crumbs, oh, you're obsessing. Oh, you're being scrupulous. Oh, you're being ridiculous. You're taking this too far. No. No, because if any priest has ever used an, an honest communion plate under people's hands or under people's tongues during just regular communion, they will see particles, crumbs, not little almost impossible frame, but legit crumbs that you can see from a few feet away. They will see these, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, right? They will see it all over the patent. So if you don't have communion plates, then where are those crumbs going? Where is our Lord going? So now look at it from the other perspective, from the pew sitter, you come forward, an altar server is making sure that every crumb is caught on these golden plates. Now you might think that's overdoing it, but also what you think is, wow, they at least care for every crumb, right? So what came first? The abandonment of chalice plates? I, I don't have chalice plates at my church. I know of almost no church in my area that does it. Even churches that are way more traditional, that are Latin or the ordinary churches, they use communion plates and they say you would, and they only receive on the tongue, kneeling at the altar rail or communion rail, and they will say, you'd be shocked at how many fragments and crumbs are on these plates. So this is what I mean by something really practical. When you remove those things that catch the crumbs, maybe you're saying without saying that not every crumb is truly Christ. And if not every crumb is truly Christ, well, you know what? We're, we're all going to fracture the host because I'm, I'm a Eucharistic minister. I'm an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, and I'm running out of hosts. I got too many people in line, so I'm just going to, on my own, start breaking hosts in my ciborium. You're not allowed to do that. That's not the fracturing, right? Right. So all of a sudden, when we when we try to democratize the Eucharist, what we are doing is we're desacralizing it. And I'm not arguing for one form or whatever, but what I am saying is the tradition of the church in communion plates and reception on the tongue and all of these things were symbols. I'm just trying to get you to see the symbolic meaning behind all of this. They were symbols that said something important about the Eucharist. Not one crumb should fall upon the floor. And now we have 70-something percent of people who go to Mass once a month, handful of times a year, every day, whatever, who no longer believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So my question for you is, what do you think will happen if we put those things back, just symbolically, what do you think that means? If we put more emphasis on beautiful art, if we have beautiful stained glass windows, right? If we lead with beauty, there's a reason why atheists go on church tours when they go to Europe. It's because the beauty is magnificent and the artwork is incredible and it draws you in. How many atheists go on tour to your church? Maybe some of you have beautiful churches, but no one visits an ugly church on purpose. No one says, hey, you know what? I want to go to St. So-and-so's. I hear their church in the round with their goofy altar is really hip. No, it, it might have been hip in 1972, uh, know, but it's so dated. It's terrible, and that's what happens when the church embraces pop culture, when we let the world set the agenda for the church. Brothers and sisters, I know what I just said here at the end. Practical might be a little controversial, but just, just let me ask you, reflect on how our Eucharistic symbols, 
right? The things we do to support the doctrine of the real presence, how do they build up or tear down the, that notion of the real presence in our daily practice? Because more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. All right, y'all. I love y'all. Dave just sent me a text message saying he thinks we'll be good to go uh, in a couple days to record next week's show. Keep him in your prayers. Keep Amber in your prayers. I love y'all. God bless. (laughs) 